Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, Episode 6, the Michael Heathen Hera, the Great Heathen Army. Last time we heard about Ethelwolf, a not inconsiderable king, an epithet which sounds very much in the style of Seller and Yeatman. I'm very proud. We heard how, with the help of his lads, Ethelwolf was actually pretty successful in holding back the growing Viking tide defeating the largest invasion yet in 851. Now, no one was pretending that the successes of 851 were expected to be the end of the affair. But it signalled that things were hairy, but manageable. Manageably hairy. In 854, the Vikings were back, with an ominous development when the Viking army stayed over winter at the Isle of Sheppey. That's in the mouth of the Thames. Although there is no information about what they did during the winter, it's ominous since it seems to indicate a greater intent to stay more permanently. It meant they could start campaigning earlier, and of course, it did no king's reputation any good whatsoever to have a bunch of hairy thugs staying as uninvited guests on his hood. By no means the least of Athelwolf's achievements, though, especially in the context of Anglo-Saxon England's inheritance laws, roughly characterised as devil take the hindmost, was that the succession on his death in 856 was to be smooth and uncontested. This is even more remarkable since he had five sons. Now the agreement was made that each brother should succeed the other if they were unsprogged. It was useful they agreed all this, given the general lack of sprogs, with one notable exception. An exception so notable that it will be noted later. Hopefully you have noted that point. Athelwolf's rebellious son, Athelbold, took over sole authority for the whole kingdom on his death. 
We know nothing much about him, really, except for one incident, his marriage, which gives me the chance to digress and tell the story of Judith, insofar as we know it. You will remember, I am sure, that Athelwolf brought back with him a Carolingian bride from the court of Charles the Bald. She was only 13, the poor lamb, but then Carolingian princesses generally got sent to nunneries, so if she hankered for the life secular, Athelwolf, old and possibly warty as the older man tends to be, was also a passport to a more exciting life. She was quite a coup for Athelwolf, the Anglo-Saxon king of a small bit of a bunch of wet islands off the coast of sophisticated Europe, and so she came with an interesting string attached. Her father insisted that she must be crowned in the Carolingian manner as a queen in her own right. The Anglo-Saxon tradition, which Asser describes as perverse and detestable, was that the queen was simply the wife of a king. She was not queen in her own right. Queen Judith is therefore pretty exceptional in English history until we get to Mary. Although those of you who have been listening closely will know that there was one Anglo-Saxon queen in her own right. Her name was Seax Berger. Fab fact for you. Anyway, when Athelwolf propped his clogs and Athelbald succeeded him, he beat a path straightway to his stepmum, Judith, now a very mature 15 years old. He told her that he'd decided to marry her. In fact, Judith was quite probably still marrying a man twice her age, but hey, it was a step in the right direction. The church in Wessex, though, was scandalised. A son marrying her mother. The medieval church was, of course, very strict about the relationship thing and included non-blood-type relationships in the whole consanguinity thing. So the fact that he was a stepson made absolutely no difference. One of the things that astounded pagans was being told that being a godparent meant you literally were the same status as a natural blood parent when it came to the rules around relationships. So, the way the church looked at this was that it was incest, pure and simple. A mother was marrying her son. Though, interestingly, the Frankish chronicle seems completely unscandalised. But then the French were always terribly relaxed about all that sort of thing, as my grandmother used to tell me, generally with her chin wobbling gently as she said it. Anyway, Athelbold told them to stop talking daft and went ahead anyway. Within two years, he was dead. Judith, by this stage just 17, had clearly had enough of Anglo-Saxons who kept keeling over. She sold up all her property in Wessex and went home to Dad. Dad did what most Carolingians did with their daughters and put her under the control of the church. But Judith had tasted of the tree of knowledge and was not content now with that future. So she fretted. Until one day she saw a likely young man at her father's court, a count, a little older than her, but much more in the right age bracket. We don't know what drew the pair to each other, but what does seem to be clear in what happens next is that Judith was by no means an unwilling partner. Anyway, the Count was called Baldwin, and he had spotted her too, and sidled up to the lass one day and said, presumably in a more sophisticated way, "Hey, up, you don't sweat much for a fat lass, how's about it? Both of them knew that Dad would not approve, and so hit on an elopement. To sneak out and do the deed, they needed help, and so Judith strong-armed her snotty little 14-year-old brother, no doubt festooned with spots and social awkwardness, into helping her escape. And they duly got married. Charles the Bald was predictably livid. 
He'd been planning to callously marry his daughter off to support his next diplomatic plan, of course. He tried to capture the pair. He sent notes telling everyone not to help them, and he even had them excommunicated. Baldwin and Judith travelled to Rome and put their case to the Pope, who frankly would have had little choice. While the Church heartily recommended involvement in the Church, in fact, the rules were that two people simply had to agree, and then they were married in the eyes of God. And so the Pope ruled in their favour, and grinding his teeth, Charles was forced to accept the whole thing. I imagine he gave the snotty younger brother, soon to be king of a fair proportion of the Western world, a good clip round the ear all. Charles wasn't finished, though. He gave Baldwin land on the River Scheldt, in the Low Countries. Hence he would become known as the Count of Flanders. The area was absolutely crawling with Viking raids. The strong possibility is that Charles hoped his son-in-law would get an axe in his face, just desserts for defying a king. But as it happens, Baldwin made a good fist of it, and Flanders would become one of the most powerful of French principalities, with a long association with medieval England as it happens. We don't know much more about Judith, but we know she has three children at last. One of them, Baldwin Jr., who became Count also, was to be married to Athelthrith, daughter of Judith's stepson, King Alfred of Wessex. Spooky. We don't know if she was alive when they got married because there is no mention of her after 870, but who knows. Anyway, Athelbald lasted only two years to 860. The next of Athelwolf's sons to take the throne was Athelbert. Athelbert is again mainly a faceless name, noted for two things only. Firstly, it was he that dispensed with the idea that Kent should be an appanage given to one of the royal family. From now on, Kent was just another part of Wessex, ruled directly by the king, and his council was now composed of men of both Wessex and Kent. The second is that in 865, Ethelbert was faced with the increasing violence from the Vikings. The first was a substantial raid that penetrated all the way to Winchester from the south coast. Now, as it happens, in this case, the second line of defence worked, the Alderman of Hampshire, Osrich, and the Alderman of Berkshire raised their levies. The Vikings chose to attack one of the few places with a wall left by the Romans at Winchester. And so they were defeated and driven off. But not so auspicious was the next raid just the following year. This time it was Kent's turn, and the Kentish Alderman looks to have tried to buy the Vikings off. The Vikings took the money, but firmly wiped their feet on the way out, ravaging eastern Kent as they left. Night closed on Athelbert's eyes in the autumn of 865. Athelwolf, looking down from heaven, must have been horrified. How many sons does a king need to have to secure the succession? Athelred is number four. In the following year, 866, one of the most famous Vikings of the age, Ragnar Lothbrok, was captured on the coast of Northumbria and murdered by Allah of Northumbria supposedly by being thrown in a pit of poisonous snakes. As he lay in the pig being bitten to death, he is reputed to have said, How the little pigs would grunt if they knew how the old boar suffers! This is almost certainly the stuff of myth and legend. But as it happens, Ragnar had five sons with a terrifying reputation. Ivar the Boneless, Ubba, Haufdan, 
Bjorn Ironside and Sigurd Snake in the Eye. Bjorn and Sigurd have no part in our story because they never came to England, but you really cannot leave out names like that if you get the chance to get them into a podcast. Let me also take the time to mention that old Snake in the Eye married a girl called Blyger, who was the daughter of Allah, murderer of his father Ragnar. There's a story there, I'd like to bet. Now, we know nothing of how plans and ideas were communicated amongst the Vikings, how any kind of coordination was achieved. But the news of Ragnar's death and his son's fury was maybe passed from ship to ship. In ports like Dublin, Vikings newly returned from raids would shake their head at the news. They might have discussed other pieces of news. Maybe they talked about how much harder it was now to make a profit from Frankia. The Carolingian king had taken to fortifying rivers and the fat and soft targets of the monasteries and churches were now much harder to get at and came at a high cost of Viking blood. Maybe they also talked about the previous year, about how a Viking army had again stayed on the Isle of Thanet, this time over the winter. Not only had they been able to stay over winter again, but the locals had been weak enough to pay them to go away. If so, they would have been ready for the messages presumably sent out by Ivar and Ubba and Halfdan that the land of the Anglo-Saxons was vulnerable, that the sons of Ragnar demanded revenge, and that this time revenge must be forever. It was time to take more than Anglo-Saxon treasure and slaves. It was time to take their land and their future. In fact, it's not clear if they had decided by this stage to settle permanently or just decided to stay for longer periods to make their collection of treasure and slaves more efficient. But these raids seem to have been in the main male affairs. As time goes by, both in England and elsewhere, the Vikings pair up with Anglo-Saxon women and, of course, there is an added inducement to stay permanently. However it happens, in 866, a vast army arrived on the shores of East Anglia. It was called by the horrified Anglo-Saxon chronicle as the Michel Hiathan Hera, the great heathen army. Much debate, sound and fury has been expended by historians on the size of the army, with the inevitable downgrading over time, but 3,000 seems a reasonable figure. By the standards of the time, this was indeed a vast horde. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle consistently refers to Danes, and no doubt there were Danes, and maybe a preponderance of Danes. But the indications are that this army had at least a large component of Norwegians, and probably from their settlement in Dublin. Ivar will leave the army in 870 to return to Dublin, although, as we'll see, it may be that he returned back to England as well. It appears at this stage that it is Ivar the Boneless leading the Viking horde. The obvious question, staring all of us in the face, and is no doubt on your lips and in your mind, is why is he called Boneless? Your guess, gentle listeners, is every good as bit as mine, and indeed probably as good as any historian's. Maybe he was extremely flexible. Maybe he had a form of brittle bone disease. Or that literally his legs were paralysed. There are references to his being carried on a shield by his warrior. Or, Viking tradition holds that Ivar's bonelessness was the result of a curse. His mother was Ragnar's third wife and had powers of sorcery. She said that she and her husband must wait three nights before consummating their marriage 
but he ignored this warning, and as a result, Ivar was born without bones. Well, who knows? Personally, I'm going nowhere near the he-literally-didn't-have-any-bones one, but whatever works for you. Really, all that's relevant is that his brothers and followers considered him a masterful warrior and strategist. The East Anglians didn't know what to do with 3,000 unwanted house guests. Their king was a man called Edmund the Martyr. He wasn't called the Martyr yet, but just wait. And Edmund presumably had some choices. Or maybe, in practical terms, he had none, actually. The route he took would have made his colleague kings in the other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms very unhappy, I imagine. He agreed that the Vikings could stay on his territory as long as they behaved themselves and left in the spring. Ivar agreed, as long as they were supplied with the food and horses they needed. And Edmund said yes. So that's great. Wessex or Northumbria or Mercia could feel confident that next year they would face 3,000 well-rested, well-supplied warriors heading their way. Excellent. Thank you, Edmund. Thank you. All for one, one for all, that sort of thing. For the Vikings, getting a hold of horses in those numbers would have been no small triumph. By staying in a big army, the Vikings had given away one of their great advantages, the speed and unexpectedness of their attacks. With horses, they retained some of that still. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Anyway, over the winter, the army gathered its resources, aided by the terrified East Anglians, and prepared for war. It's worth noting that the structure of Anglo-Saxon England maybe helps the invaders in these days, and maybe makes England peculiarly vulnerable to attack, since it was still, of course, firmly separated into four kingdoms, no concept of a united England, so it meant that each English nation was perfectly happy to pay the heathens off and send them into the next kingdom and the Vikings played this for all they were worth. Though, while we're on the topic, I have to ask if such a structure didn't have an advantage too. So compare the outcome in the 9th century here with the later invasions of Knut and William the Conqueror. Both those conquerors face a single united kingdom, presumably much stronger. Both overcome the king and capture London. Neither have to end up trawling their way through four completely separate kingdoms. Just a thought. Divided we stand, united we fall. That sort of thing. If vengeance was indeed one of the reasons why the Lothbroxans were here, their next move was unsurprising. In 867, the great heathen army went north. North towards Northumbria and its capital, Yorfowick, York. Their timing was a thing of beauty, because Northumbria was in the grip of a civil war. 
The king of 18 years, Osbert, had been challenged by a non-royal contender, that very same Allah referred to in the legend of Ragnar Lothbrok. The two had fought each other to a standstill, and while they were so occupied, the Vikings met little resistance and soon they were inside the ancient and poorly repaired walls of what had been Roman Eboricum. Yorthorwick, York. Allah and Osbert sat down and took four months to repair their differences and mount an attack to retake York in March 867. The result was a complete disaster for the English. Both kings were killed along with eight aldermen. The Northumbrians were left helpless and leaderless with nothing to do except buy peace. They were charged a high price, the Vikings ravaged York and the surrounding areas and stripped it of everything of value. Back to myth, just for a moment. So the story goes that Allah did not die on the spot, but was captured by Eva and subjected to the blood eagle. If you are of a sensitive disposition, you might want to turn away at this moment. I'll give you a few moments. It's not pretty. OK? The blood eagle was a method of execution. It was performed by cutting the ribs of the victim by the spine, just by the spine, breaking the ribs, twisting them up, I assume, so they resembled blood-stained wings. And then you pulled the lungs out. Salt was then liberally sprinkled in the wounds. Surely, surely that has got to be gilding the lily, since it seems most unlikely that anyone would still be alive after all of that. But anyway, this version of events is contradicted by the English sources, and again, likely to be nothing but legend. OK, you can come back now. There's another legend that has it that Ivar asked only for enough land as could be covered by an oxide. When he duly got the oxide, he cut it into super-thin strips, put them all together, and had enough land for a fortress. Vikings loved this sort of cunning stuff. But isn't that something from the classics? Anyway, it's all tripe, of course, but fun tripe. So the Danes installed a puppet king in Northumbria called Egbert, later in 867, and then took off and took winter quarters in Nottingham in Mercia. They were therefore the responsibility now of the Mercian king, one Burgred. Burgred had been king for a good 15 years by this stage, but does not go away from the Viking Wars with a strong reputation. In fact, he'd already established a reputation for being a little needy. He'd been beaten once already by the Vikings and been rescued by Ethelwulf. He'd asked for Ethelwulf's help with the Welsh, and now he did the same again, called for help from Wessex. On the other hand, rather than me being so dismissive, let me say that very sensibly, Burgred felt that the Anglo-Saxons should come together against their enemies, which is fair dues. Burgred, the king of Mercia, was therefore joined by Athelred and the youngest of the five brothers, a young man called Alfred, in front of the walls. But the Danes declined a major engagement, and so the two parties stitched up a peace. As normal, we don't know anything about it, but Mercia is pretty much avoided for some time by the great heathen army, so maybe that was part of the deal. Athelred and Burgred clearly thought this cooperation was a good thing, though. Soon afterwards, a marriage was arranged between King Athelred's younger brother Alfred and a Mercian noblewoman called Ealswith. You can see signs of cooperation in the similarity of the Mercian and Wex Saxon coinage. Not that this would help Wessex when the rains came, but hey, for the moment it made sense. 
Meanwhile, the Great Army returned to York in 869 and spent the summer there. Again, sadly, we know nothing of what happened during the year, but we can guess, can't we, that they were joined by fresh raiders. The news that a great Viking army had been in England now for two years without defeat, that there was land and riches, the most amazing riches, available for any that came. And surely they would have come. In the winter of 869, their thoughts turned again to East Anglia. We don't know what deal they'd made with Edmund in 866. Maybe they'd promised not to attack for a few years. If they had, East Anglia's time was up. In the winter of 869, they rode for East Anglia, arrived and set up camp at a place called Thetford. Now, unusually, we have a sort of biography for Edmund, the East Anglian king. This statement has no doubt got you interested. You've sat a little straighter up, looked excitedly at your generic MP3 player. Seriously, a biography from the Dark Ages. Of the East Anglians, about whom we know nothing. Speak on, sweet lips that never spoke a lie. Well, sorry to disappoint you. It was written a century or more after Edmund's death, apparently on the words of the king's armour-bearer, and it's not a glowing example of the scientific historical method. It is, in fact, a hagiography by a chap called Abbo, and therefore unreliable in terms of historical accuracy, since its aim was to create a saint. It paints Edmund as a perfect model of a Christian king who chose death rather than shed Christian blood come back to that in a minute. Anyway, saint or not, Edmund this time was having none of it. It was time to fight. There are then many traditions about where the battle and following events take place. Abbo talks of a place which could be Helsden, which is just north of the fine city of Norwich, about 30 miles away. Another tradition has the resulting battle at a place called Hoxner, much further south in Suffolk. Either way, wherever it is, you will want to know what happened. Firstly, we have two reasonably contemporary comments on the battle. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle recorded, This year the army rode over Mercia into East Anglia, and there fixed their winter quarters at Thetford. And in the winter, King Edmund fought with them, but the Danes gained the victory and slew the king. Whereupon they overran all that land, and destroyed all the monasteries to which they came. The other is from Asser and his biography of Alfred. If you're hoping for a better result, don't. In the same year, Edmund, king of the East Angles, fought fiercely against that army. But alas, he was killed there with a large number of his men, and the Danes rejoiced triumphantly. The enemies were masters of the battlefield and they subjected that entire province to their authority. The tradition around Hoxney was that Edmund hid under a bridge after the battle. A newlywed couple crossing the bridge saw the glinting of his golden spurs in the water and rushed off to tell the Vikings. This is obviously wrong. The newlyweds would have been far too busy rushing off to pick up their wedding presents. It also sounds deeply anachronistic. But... Our friend Abbo created the hagiography that would create England's patron saint, or at least England's patron saint until Henry III picked up Edward the Confessor, and then Edward III decided that we needed a better national saint, a bloke better than one that got walloped by the Vikings like Edmund, or one that was dominated by his nobility and left his country in a right old pickle 
therefore letting in Billy the Conk, like the Confessor. And I'm with Edward III on this one. At least St George, though in many ways an odd choice, was a winner. Anyway, Abbo's story is that Edmund was given the choice of life if he renounced the Christian God. Edmund, of course, refused. Otherwise, he'd be a poor candidate for a Christian saint, wouldn't he? He was therefore tied to an oak tree and shot chock full of arrows. The parallels with St. Sebastian are rather obvious. Then the Danes cut his head off, which was equally unfriendly, you've got to say, and threw it into the bushes. The East Anglians came looking for the head of their king, and the head cried out, Here! Here! And so the head, perfectly preserved, was found. St. Edmund the Martyr, as he now became known, not to be confused with St. Edward the Martyr, who will come later, was given a home in a church at Bury St. Edmunds. That sounds like a command, doesn't it? Bury St. Edmunds, sort of thing. But of course the suffix bury comes from the old English word for borough, or fortified town. Now, you might think that the Vikings, flushed with success, would sit down to enjoy the fruits of their labours. But you would be wrong to so think. In early autumn, or the winter of 870, the Vikings decided that Wessex was their next target, and they moved to Reading, on the Thames, a good base from which to threaten most parts of southern England. In 870 and 871 were mad years of constant warfare. After some initial success... Athelred and Alfred attacked the Danish camp, only to be driven off with losses, retreating west to somewhere along the Berkshire Downs, to somewhere we know not where, called Ashdown. The legend goes that Alfred then found a sarsen stone, that is a limestone rock with a hole in it, and he blew through the hole to create a booming sound that called the Anglo-Saxons from their homes to defend their country and their families. Meanwhile, the Danes, full of confidence, swarmed after them with their fresh men and memories of victories against two English kingdoms and their recent win at Reading. Ready to destroy the country of Wessex. On the 8th of January, 871, the two armies faced each other in two shield walls while King Athelred finished his prayers. Impatient to get at the Vikings, Alfred called the charge anyway, and the shield walls met. The result was a victory for the English that saw the death of five Viking earls and a Danish king with as unpronounceable a name as you can imagine, but which looks as though it could be Bagsek. The Danes ran back to Reading for shelter. Fantastic! Great Anglo-Saxon victory! Wessex is saved! Sadly, it looks as though the great and momentous victory of Ashdown might just be the victim of some bigging up by the Anglo-Saxons. Because the fighting doesn't stop there. And in fact, that was by some way the high point of the year for the English side. Athelred and Alfred fought a battle further south at Basing, and they lost. Then they fought at a place called Marodun, and they lost again. This was bad, and in April 871, the situation looked bad for Wessex but it was about to get considerably worse. In early April, lured by the tales of success and riches, a fleet of Viking dragon boats sailed up the Thames to join the Great Army, and so was born the Great Summer Army. And then, later that very same month, April 871, the King of Wessex, Athelred, just 23 years old, 
died. Now, Athelred had managed to do what none other of his brothers had yet managed. He'd produced children. He had two sons, Athelhelm and Athelwald. Given his age, both of them must have been pretty young. Now look, primogeniture gets a very positive write-up by historians. Seriously, it does. There is a very strong assumption that societies that still have partible inheritance and are selective kingships are weak, out-of-date, vulnerable, generally rubbish and prone to chaos. I can see the point. But every so often, the approach of selecting your king from the best available option has got to look good, doesn't it? So if this was Normandy, Athelwald would now be king. We would have a squalling baby as a king with the wolf at the door. Well, actually, with the wolf well over the threshold and into the living room. There was a potential for disaster. And so the Witan did the only sensible thing. They put aside any claims the Athelings, Athelwald and Athelhelm might have and chose the 22-year-old Alfred, last remaining son of Athelwulf, to be their king. So just before we finish, let's step back for a moment. Over the last five years, the Viking threat had turned from an inconvenience to a catastrophic disaster for Anglo-Saxon England. Already two ancient kingdoms, Northumbria and East Anglia, had been destroyed, although there would be a period where they were nominally ruled by an Anglo-Saxon. Along the way, countless treasures, churches, libraries, archives, lay in ruins. A vast, confident Viking horde was sitting on the throat of Wessex, poised, saliva dribbling gently from its fangs, the smell of its rancid breath in the Anglo-Saxon face, ready to rip the throat out. Haven't they done well, ladies and gentlemen? Next week, we'll meet Alfred, the first king for whom we have an impression really as a person, an individual, and whose own voice reaches to us down from the centuries. Until then, have a hoolie, and thanks ever so much for listening. <laughs>